We're going to start a new study series. I'm super excited about this. Um, I'd like to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We're going to be doing a brief series in the book of Jonah. I had thought that I would do it in four weeks, um, but as people who know me really well had already started laughing at that thought, um, it's not going to be a four-week series, but it will be short. We're going to keep things pretty condensed, um, but due to uh, the introductory uh, of the book, it's not going to be four um, sermons. Um, there's already chuckling in the room. It's probably at my expense right now, and you're probably laughing at home too. That's fine. That's fine. If I'm providing laughs and joy, that's fine. Um, but but I am going to try and keep this study series short. So um, as we turn in our Bibles to the book of Jonah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Okay, I gave you all the ones around it. As you're turning in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, um, you'll notice something. It's grouped, although it's grouped in the writings of the prophets, it's right there in the middle amongst the minor prophets. It, it's a literary narrative rather than a collection of prophetic messages. And so what we're seeing in, in Jonah, just to kind of you know get your, your mind processing on how it's written, um, it's not going to be a bunch of messages of prophecy to people, although Jonah will deliver a prophetic message in, in this book. The, the focus of the book plays out like a literary narrative, as in it's telling the story of Jonah. It's telling a story of, of something that he went through interacting with God and, and a number of different things. Um, so... At the beginning of this book, I think it's important to ask two questions, and so I want to ask these questions of you, and, and the first one's going to be simple, um, for Christians especially, and the first question is this, does God have a plan? Does God have a plan? Does he have a will? Does he have a direction? Is he going in a direction, or does he not have a plan? That's the first question. The second question is this, if God has a plan, are we both individually and collectively, as the church, a willing part of that plan? Are we individually and collectively as the church, as parts of the body, but also as the collective body, are we willing parts of that plan? And so as Christians, I think the former question is really easy. God absolutely has a plan. God has God is a designer. He's a creator. He has a plan. He has a meaning and a purpose behind what he does. He's not just pointlessly doing things. God is going in a direction and he has a plan, not only for this world, but for our lives. But the latter question requires some self-examination. And this examination should happen, I believe, on a daily basis. It shouldn't be something that we examine ourselves once and be like, am I, am I on board? Am I a part of this? Am I a willing part? Sure. I think that that can change over time. And I think we all understand what that dynamic looks like. That as time goes on, sometimes we are willing and unwilling to, to uh, be a part of what God's doing in our lives. Sometimes we're kicking and screaming. Sometimes we're all for it. And sometimes we need Tums, as I just said. But either way, I mean, like, it's not, sometimes we just, we're, we're willing or we're unwilling. I think we have to go through this self-examination on a regular basis. And, and what I want to call us to is a very uh, acute awareness of how we are individually and collectively participating in God's superior plan. And as we ask that question of ourselves, are we a willing part? Um, it requires us to really consider what we're signing to. And before we sign on the dotted line, I want you to notice the active word in my question. And it's, are we a willing part? Are we a willing part to what God's doing? This study series is entitled The Runaway Prophet. And most of us will immediately think of the narrative, we'll think of the storyline, many of us familiar with it, even in Sunday school, we were kind of taught the, you know, the swallowed and, and 
by the, the great fish and don't you dare say whale in Sunday school. You'll get corrected harshly, you know, but like whatever this big creature was that swallowed Noah, we know or Noah. See, no one even like hitched in the room. I said Noah, no one even budged. They're like, Jonah. We all understand that Jonah was swallowed by, by the big fish, right? But here's, here's the thing. We think of him as the runaway prophet in, in the physical sense that he ran away from God. That's the first thing we're going to read about in the story. Um, but by choosing the title runaway prophet, the intention is to draw atten- the, the intention is to draw attention not only to his physical running away, but why he ran away. And that his heart was already turning and running in an opposite direction from God before his body moved. And we understand this. The heart turns and runs first. The heart runs first, then the body follows. And so what I want to point us to, and we'll see this especially, is that Jonah initially reacts with physical running. But primarily, how we physically react to what God asks us to do is coming from either a willing or an unwilling heart. And here's the tricky part. We can physically even do the right thing because we know it's right and have our hearts not be in it. We'll see that especially at the second half of the story as we study. As we continue the study through, we're going to see that Jonah will be a physical participant but not have his heart all in. And this is a really dangerous thing for the church. And this is something I want us to see really clearly that we aren't called to just physically participate in what God's doing. We are called to be heart engaged. We're called to be people who are heart connected to God and heart submitted to God so that when we're willing participants, he's getting heart, body, mind, he's getting all of us. It's not just us doing the right things because that is a form of religiosity when we just do things, but our heart's not in it, that's empty and dead. That's just good works. That doesn't save. But when our hearts are given to God and he has changed our lives from within and we start living that out, that's when we effectively live out his will in our lives. That's when we play the role in his story that we're called to play. And so God doesn't just want us to obey physically. He does want us to obey him physically. He has a mission for Jonah to go on, but God wants our hearts to be submitted to him first and then to obey him from the heart. And so when we talk about a runaway prophet, as we look at Jonah, I'm not just talking about what he physically did. I'm talking about a heart that was running from God. I'm talking about a heart that's not submitted to God. And we all can be familiar with what this is like. He's still God's man. He's still God's child. He's still called by God to do something. But Jonah was not a willing participant. And I think that sometimes when God's doing things around us that we don't really understand, we aren't necessarily willing participants. We are participating, but a lot of times we're doing it kicking and screaming on the inside. We just get a really good look at that in Jonah's life because Jonah was one of those guys who wore his emotion on his sleeve. We'll see that especially in chapter four. So by way of introduction, just to kind of familiarize us here, Jonah is not only spoken of here in the book of Jonah, he's referenced one other time in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where he actually prophesies about the expansion of the northern kingdom of Israel prior to its destruction at the hands of Assyria. Now, when Jonah is the prophet that's announcing, that gives us some context to understand his interaction with prophecy toward, uh, you know, for Israel regarding their expansion in a time where Assyria was really dominating. And we know that Nineveh was an Assyrian city. Um, and so this would put Jonah's ministry most likely in 8th century B.C., um, quite likely during the reign of Jeroboam II. 
And so although there's been a lot of debate over the years due to some of the bizarre circumstances of Jonah um, and the things that he's going to go through, the interactions he has, clearly surviving the belly of the fish, you know, for uh, quite a while, um, for three days. And so there's several reasons However, in scripture, and this is all biblically based, there's a lot of skeptics will look at it from the outside and go, clearly this is not a real story, but we believe in the God of the Bible. We believe in a God who does miracles. We believe in a God who not only can raise dead to life, but can create something from nothing. And so when we believe in a God that does all that, we should think very carefully about why we question a story like Jonah's to be true or not true. And then look at the evidence for whether this is something that is fictional or nonfiction. And I think that scripture gives us very clear understanding that this is a historical record and not a fairy tale. Uh, the most obvious reason is that Jesus clearly in his ministry believed the book of Jonah to be truth, to be a real story. He references it twice. And the three days and the three nights spent by Jonah and the great fish served as an analogy for Jesus's death and resurrection in Matthew 12 verses 38 through 41. But I think the more compelling argument for Jesus believing that this was a real, a real story and these were real people that were interacting here is the positive response of the Ninevites to Jonah's preaching further along in chapter 3 um, was used by Jesus as a condemnation of the failure of many in his generation to believe in him. You can read about it in Luke chapter 11 verse 32. And so it should be noted that Jesus' statement from Luke 11 says this, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. Jesus is talking about actual, factual things that happened. Jesus clearly believed Jonah to be a real story, to be a real prophet, to go to a real city, to preach to real people, to see real revival. And so it's important that we look at that example of Jesus and say, okay, if we're going to say that this wasn't an actual historical record, we're going to say that Jesus is wrong. I don't recommend that. I don't encourage that in any way. So I, I would recommend going with what Jesus says because he's God in human flesh. And so we can agree with him. But there's more evidence than just that. In addition to what Jesus said about the book of Jonah and what he believed about as he taught about it. In addition to this, the story includes actual geographical locations historically verified people, and the book itself isn't grouped with books of poetry and scripture. I noted, I pointed that out at the beginning. Even though it's unique amongst the books of the prophet, it's always collected with the books of the prophets because it's an actual historical record from someone who lived. It's not included in the books of poetry. It's not included in any kind of fable-type storyline. It's included with a grouping of writings from real people who lived at real times and prophesied real things. And so he was writing about real events and whoever recorded this book intended it to be understood as something that really happened. And we can take it as such. Having celebrated Easter last week, I think it's important to point out something that I, I noted before just all by itself. It's worth considering that we worship a savior who's risen from the dead because it's not hard um, for God to preserve a man in the stomach of a big fish for three days when he can raise the dead to life or create something from nothing. And so a lot of times I think the reason that we'll start to doubt certain parts of scripture is because of our view of God. It comes down to our opinion of God. And somehow in some way we've put God into a box and we've tried to diminish his power. Now we all recognize that we can't physically do that. Um, but in our hearts, we view him in a position of being able to be compressed into this spot 
where this is how God functions and he can't function outside of that. And I think that that's terribly unbiblical and terribly dangerous. And so as we look at scripture, we would do well to accept the evidence given and remember that God is able to work both with natural and supernatural ways to achieve his purpose. God is able to work through natural and supernatural ways to achieve his purpose. Doesn't that make you want to be on board with what God's doing? That should make us want to be more on board with what God's doing in our lives. Because if God can use natural and supernatural means, he's already way beyond anything I could ever think or do. And so when I hold on to the Lord and entrust my life to him, I'm recognizing that God can do whatever he chooses to do, whether that's natural or supernatural. And that because of that, anything that's happening in my life, he's aware of and in control of. And a lot of us struggle with this because we go through really difficult things. But God, when he allows us to go through those things, is strengthening us and building us up. Read James chapter one. There's so much encouragement there for those who are going through those difficulties and what God is producing in them. But I think that we learn something as we look at Jonah's story in regard to that struggle and the the things that we go through. And not to put too fine a point on it, but this book is a lesson for all of us on submitting and obeying God's role for us in his purpose. The book of Jonah is a lesson that we can learn from about submitting and obeying God's role for us in his purpose purpose. Operative word before, how willing we are. And here, his purpose. It's not my purpose. It's his purpose. It's not what my life's all about. It's what his design for my life is. We don't doubt his motive or method, but we entrust ourselves to him because he is good and because he is sovereign and because we know that he loves us. When we recognize that God loves us, boy, that changes so much about how we operate. And so, With that in mind, it's not an exhaustive introduction to Jonah. There's so much more, but we're going to call that good and just get going with the text. So let's get to Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We read this, Jonah 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. It's funny, as you read it out loud, you realize how much the the writer is repeating himself, making really clear the locations, um, you know, the directions, and the rebellion. I mean, it's pretty clear. It's like, he's not listening. Jonah's not doing what he's told to do. Now, what we know about Nineveh, and, and, and this is really fascinating stuff, and, and we could talk a lot more, but uh, I'll leave that for you on your personal time to study more about the, um, the archaeological finds of Nineveh. But Nineveh is on the east bank of the Tigris River. It became the Assyrian capital in 705 BC, which is interesting because that's well after Jonah's day. Um, so it wasn't the Assyrian capital at this time. It would become that at a later date, 705. Its ruins were found in the northern part of modern Iraq. It's opposite of the city of Mosul, which you may be familiar with. It's about 220 miles northwest of Baghdad. And so they found this city. They found the archaeological remains of it. And for Jonah, from where he is, Nineveh was a really hard journey to get to. You're talking 500 miles, but if you're looking at the path that he would have to take from Samaria up north and then going um, to uh, to the east, he would probably have more like 600 miles to get there. Now, 
you know, for Jonah's situation, right now his SUV was in the shop, it wasn't running, so he would have to go the old school way, and he's either going to have to ride a donkey or some kind of an animal or walk there. You know, and so we think about 600 miles, and you're like, oh, no big deal, we can knock that out in a day. No, you couldn't, not back then. And so for Jonah, this isn't just going to a foreign city. Notice that God is sending him to a foreign Gentile city. And we'll talk about what kind of people the Assyrians are in a minute. But not only that, he's sending him a long ways away. This is a journey. This is a difficult journey. The task that God has given to Jonah, make no qualms about it, was very hard. That in no way justifies disobedience. Just because what God has asked us to do is difficult doesn't mean that we have an excuse to not do it. The journey was hard. The destination was far from ideal. Nineveh, uh, even though it wasn't the capital of Assyria at this time, was still a major city. It's still a major city in Assyria. And the Assyrians, to give you a little taste of what they were like, they were cruel. They were warlike. Um, they were longtime enemies of Israel. And if you look at their artwork, it emphasizes war. Uh, including scenes of execution, impalement, flaying the skin off of prisoners, beheadings. It's brutal stuff to look at. And as you look at these things, you understand where Jonah would have to be going. Jonah's reluctance to preach to this infamous city of Nineveh is really understandable. You know, I, I, I don't really want to compare a city and be like, it's like me if, it'd be like if God was sending you to this place. I don't really want to do that because people are watching these services all over. I don't want you to think I'm dissing on your city, but think of a really difficult, scary place to go. Nineveh. There you go. It's far away, difficult journey, really scary to go to. And yet God's command is given and we're often unable to see the point nor a positive outcome for ourselves in the commissioning of God. Oftentimes I don't see the point or the outcome of what God's doing in my life. You would think that, you know, as a pastor, I would have this great vision of everything God's doing in my life. Oh, God gives me vision. A lot of times the vision he's given me is one step in front of me and the rest is dark. And that's intentional because God, when he calls me to do something, oftentimes will leave out the details to teach me to trust him, to build my faith. That never ends. That's not something that's just for certain types of people at certain seasons. God is always seeking to build our faith. And so when we look at these different situations of our life and we don't know what the outcome's going to be, we don't know how this is going to go. We don't see the point of being here. We don't see the, the final outcome of the destination of where we're going. But here's the thing. God knows and that's enough. God knows and that's enough. I mean, we see all these really cool Christian t-shirts. That's maybe one we should put together is transform. God knows and that's enough. Because if he knows, I can trust him. And he always knows. And so our lack of vision has to be surrendered to God's sovereignty. And as we'll see in Jonah's case, the problem within goes much deeper than his inability to see this turning out well. This is a much bigger issue than just Jonah not wanting to physically go one direction and physically choosing to go to another. His heart is not in it. And not only is his heart not in it, Jonah has some personal problems with this, these people. He has issues. And so sometimes we don't want not only God to do certain things in our lives, but I want to point this out. We're going to get into it in more depth later on in our study. Sometimes we don't want God to forgive others because we don't want to forgive them. 
Sometimes I don't want God to forgive other people because I want to stay bitter. Because I want to hold on to things that have happened to me. Church, that's the flesh. That's sin. We should rejoice when God forgives people of their sin because he forgave us. And Jesus called us to forgive in the same way that he has forgiven. And so we can't hold these things on. What you realize and what many of us have seen in our lives over the years is this. That bitterness, when I hold on to it, it destroys me. When we hold on to that bitterness and we don't forgive, that destroys us individually. We'll talk more about having a heart of forgiveness when we get to that part of the story. But right now, Jonah's a running and he's going the wrong direction. And so he responds immediately to the command of the Lord by going in the opposite direction, heading towards the Mediterranean Sea. Instead of going north and east, he's most likely going south and west. And so he's going the opposite direction. Jonah gets up and he flees to, to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. And notice says he got up to flee. He's not going to get there. But he got up to flee to go in that direction. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Notice this. He's running from the presence of the Lord. Where is God? Kids in the room. Where's God? Everywhere. So how, how successful will Jonah be in running from the presence of God? Not at all. Good job. A plus for everyone. Okay, so it's really cool to see a location like this that you can go visit and know exactly where you're at. There's lots of these in Israel today, but Joppa, the city of Joppa is just south of Tel Aviv today. You can walk there very easily uh, from the city of Tel Aviv right along the coastline. It's a natural seaport. And while scholars have struggled uh, not with where Joppa is, they struggled with where Tarshish is. Um, there are a few options of where this could be, but the most likely would be the Phoenician colony of Tartessus, uh, which is located on the southwestern coast of Spain, about 2,000 miles west of Palestine. And so if this is the true location, there's some places, there's been some discussion about it. By far, that's the leaning of, of most of the scholars that I've read. Um, this is about as far in the opposite direction of Nineveh as Jonah could go. If his goal is to get to Tarshish, that's about as far as he can go. We're talking on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. He is running, and it's like it's like my pug in a windstorm. If he gets out front, he's running. He doesn't care who's yelling. He's going, right? Sometimes I wish a big fish would jump up out of the sewer and just swallow him whole. And he wouldn't even have to come back in three days. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. My kids are like, I love my pug. Um, but, but you guys understand this. Jonah is trying to get as far away from God as he can. And that's taking him in the opposite direction, ironically, of God's calling. Running from God runs from his calling. That makes sense, I think. But when we recognize that God's calling on our life is the purpose for which we've been placed here, that means we are going in the opposite direction of fulfilling the mission of our lives. This is Jonah's mission. He's running the opposite direction. So verse 4 says this, how well does it go for him? Well, we most of us know, but let's read it because this is great. It's the word of God. The Lord threw a great wind, verse 4, onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. That word threatened actually means was considering. It's thinking about breaking apart. That's how bad it is. Verse 5, the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. 
Running from God is not possible. God just throws a wind out onto the sea and creates a storm. We see this in Jonah's case, and it isn't and isn't it wild um, how we don't apply the same lesson ourselves? We like to think that in moments that we're alone, that we're actually alone. We say and we do things when people aren't around because, well, no one's around, so what does it matter? You realize that you haven't outfoxed God and, and found a way to be free of him when you're alone. Everything that you're doing, whether with people or by yourself, is being seen by God. We're accountable. You're always accountable to a God who is omnipresent. And so it's funny how we can look at Jonah and go, Jonah, what a fool. What a doof, you know, <laughs> going the wrong direction, going to the water when you should be going to the land. Wow. What a goober. You're the same way. And so am I. And we know it. We're the exact same way. And so what we look to have is a heart that's submitted to God so that we are constantly aware of his presence. Not constantly trying to get him to be with us, constantly aware of his presence. That we actually recognize in the moment when we're going to sin that God is near. That God is here. And so Jonah's not getting away from anything. We don't get away from God when we go and hide in the closet. He knows. You know, and it says, um, the song I used to sing, I think it's written from a psalm. You know, where can I go from your presence? You know, if I, if I go up to the top of a mountain, you're there. If I go down to the depths of the sea, you're there. You know, and, and God is everywhere and, and we're not hiding from him anywhere. And so as the ship is threatening to break apart, as things are getting bad out on the sea, as God's trying to get Jonah's attention, he's getting the attention of the sailors. He's getting the attention of the sailors. Notice what they're doing. They're falling apart. They're crying out to their gods, which are powerless to help them. They're throwing cargo overboard, trying to lighten the boat. They're, they're scared of what's happening. Jonah, however, continues his descent both physically and spiritually. Jonah continues his descent. He goes down to the lowest part of the boat and he goes into a deep sleep. Now, this is an interesting thing because God is trying to get Jonah's attention. He's getting the attention of the sailors and not Jonah. And this is a horrible thing that can happen. We are so not in tune with God that he's getting attention of even people who are around us when he's trying to get our attention. Now, I would say this, God is... Very aware of getting the sailors' attention because something really cool is going to happen in their lives. But this story is about God getting Jonah's attention and shaping and forming, getting Jonah to actually see things through his eyes. And Jonah's sleeping. Jonah's sleeping when he should be awake. Think about all the, the times that we've read just in these first five verses about Jonah going down. Interesting observation. As you look at the text... I want to point these out to you. Beginning in verse 2, God says, Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because their evils come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down, that's one, to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Verse 4, there's a great storm that comes up on the sea. Threats to break them apart. Verse 5, the sailors of each cried out to their God. They threw the ship's cargo. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel. Three times in verses 2 through 5, or 3 through 5 technically, Jonah has gone down physically. But we're seeing a spiritual descent in this man as well because rejecting and resisting God 
produces both a spiritual and a physical descent every time. We will always digress deeper into that situation so long as we're resisting God. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah went down to Joppa. God sent a storm. Jonah went down into the lowest part of the ship. What we're going to see here as we continue our study next week, especially God's going to reveal that Jonah is the cause of the storm and Jonah is going to go down to the depths of the sea. Jonah is going to literally hit rock bottom. He's going to go down to where he would say even the base of the mountains are the lowest part of the sea. He is physically going to have to descend all the way until he can't go down any further. This is a tough guy. He's a stubborn man. And that's not in a good way. There are good ways to be tough. This is not one of them. Stubbornness is never a a quality when it comes to our lives that we want to praise or rejoice in when when it's in reference to God. Now, being firm in what God has called us to do is good. But being stubborn against what God is doing is bad. And you are not righteous enough to make that decision and neither am I. We are not righteous enough to make that decision on whether what we're doing is better or not. And a lot of that stubbornness, a lot of those things that we look at and my parents used to talk about, I remember my older sister being super stubborn, you know, well, stubbornness can be good when it's standing up for the right thing. But when you're stubborn just for the sake of being righteous in your own eyes, it's a bad thing. And um, we've all experienced that to some extent, you know, and so if you're one of those kids like, yeah, I'm stubborn. My parents always say I'm stubborn. Not good. It's maybe not a good thing. It's good if you're firm in your faith. But if you are marked with stubbornness, that could be something you're actually resisting God with. God wants us to be soft. Look at Jesus. Was Jesus noted as being stubborn? Jesus was called humble and meek. And that's who we want to be like. There were all these opportunities for Jonah to repent and turn to God, but he refused until he literally hit the bottom of the sea. The foundation of the mountains, as he'll talk about in chapter 2. Are we like this? Are we people that are like that? Is that something that I recognize in my life? Do we force extreme measures by God to finally repent? Church, listen, we must adopt a heart of immediate repentance. We have to adopt a heart of immediate repentance. We have to be people that when we hear God's call or we read his instruction in his word or he stirs us through the spirit that we immediately repent when we find these areas of pride in our lives. Adopt a heart of immediate repentance. David David says this in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. God is pleased when we are broken and soft before him, when we are humble before him. Jonah is spiritually spiraling spiraling, and it's affecting him physically. Look at how exhausted he is. It says it here in verse five, gives us a real clear indicator. Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel. He'd stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. If you're able to sleep deeply in the midst of what's going on on the sea, like this, a storm like this, that's scaring the sailors. They're throwing cargo overboard. This is a big deal. But Jonah sleeping through that. My take on this, Jonah's got some serious guilt here. Jonah's got some serious stress. You may even have a little bit of depression going on. 
Where's all that coming from? Disobedience to God. It's all coming from resisting God, from not listening to what God's doing. Jonah is in this position. He's in this place because he's resisting the Lord. It should encourage us that God's not going to leave him there. It should encourage us that God's not so frustrated that he's done with Jonah and I'm going to send a real prophet who will actually listen to me this time. Aren't you glad that God doesn't treat us like that? You know, you look at what a pill, I mean, especially by the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah is a pill. He is a real problem child. You know, he's that bratty kid, you know, but like you look at Jonah's like God is so patient with him. That should encourage us so much, you guys. That should encourage us so much that God sticks with us, that he's faithful, that he continues to invest, he continues to be soft. He is so gentle with Jonah. You're like, gentle? He's about to get swallowed by a giant fish. He's going to survive. <laughs> he's going to survive, and he's also going to survive his absolute blatant rebellion later on to God's face. Now, that's never advised, but that should really encourage us when we look at our past and go, I don't know if God will be able to forgive me for what I've done. He can and he will. And it's not based on you. It's based on Jesus. He can and he will. And that's why scripture says that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin when we confess it. Because of Jesus. It's not based on your performance. But I tell you what. That never justifies bad behavior. And so we are, as Paul will talk about in Romans, we are never to take advantage of God's grace. We are to see it as something that gives us this heart that David describes in Psalm 51, it breaks our spirit. We have a broken and a humble heart before God because he's so kind to us. He's so good to us and we are so undeserving of it. What an awesome God we serve. And so Jonah is sleeping at a time where he should be on the road to Nineveh. I don't know how long they were out there at sea. It sure doesn't look like it was long. But whether or not they've been out there a long time, Jonah should be on the road to Nineveh right now, and he's sleeping in the bottom of a boat out on the sea. Next week, we're going to see how God, through his overwhelming grace, will save people even when we're failing. God saves people even when I'm failing miserably. Why? Why does he do that? Because he's good. Because it's all about him, and I'm not going to wreck his plan, even if I'm being a complete dummy. I'm not going to wreck God's plan. God's still going to get his thing done, but it sure will make a mess of me if I'm not a part of it. If I'm not a part of what he's doing, it's making a mess out of my life. God, by his overwhelming grace, will save people, even when we're failing, we'll see this. And what's really cool is that Probably at every juncture that we come to in this study, we're going to see that the book of Jonah is not about Jonah. It's called Jonah, but it's not about him. This book is about God. This story, this literary, literary narrative is all about God's grace, his power, his ability, his faithfulness, his love. It's all about God. We just get to see it through the story of a man who didn't do it very well. Remind you of anyone? <laughs> Man, that should encourage us. That even when we're failing, God's still getting it done. And so I just want to call us to action. I want to call us to respond. 
because so many times we will recognize our failure and we will sit in that failure for years. And I just want to call you out of the failure right now. I want you to think about this on the thought of sleeping when we should be moving. This applies to us both spiritually and physically. And on that thought, I want to read to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So would you turn there with me? Um, there on your device, if you're using a device or on um, in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me read this first section to you. We're going to read the first 11 verses, and I'm not going to line upon line teach this. I just I want you to think about what we read here, and I want to point out a couple things, and then we'll close. 1 Thessalonians 5 beginning in verse one, says this. This is the Apostle Paul writing. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark, for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. That passage, oh, we could spend weeks, weeks studying that passage. But here's my encouragement based on reading that. Two simple things. Number one, and, and I mean this, memorize that. Memorize 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. That is such an important part of scripture for us to know by heart for the season that we're in. I could teach on that forever right now, considering what we're going through with the virus in our world right now, with the reaction of people to it, with the different types of things we're going to be experiencing in the next couple of years, or maybe even the next decade. I want to encourage you, memorize this. You're going to need it because we need the perspective of the children of light. We are children of light. We are children of the day. And these things that are happening around us do not control us. The things that are happening around us are happening and God knows about it. He knows about it and we serve him. Now we recognize and we obey the authority that God has allowed to be over us in this world. And right now we should continue to do that because it honors Christ when we do. But we certainly don't recognize them as being more powerful, more sovereign, more in control than God is because God knows and he's in control. And so memorize passages like this. Lock them away in your heart. Just as David wrote, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Hide his word in your heart through memorization. That's number one. Number two, we must be willing of heart and physically active, living our, our salvation in Christ. There is so much to do in quarantine, church. There is so much to do during stay-at-home orders. You know, here's the thing. We think about it. And we're like, well, what can I do? You know, I see it, I, and I love you. Hopefully there's some teens watching right now that have really been struggling with this. I love you guys. But let me challenge you. Paul wrote letters in prison. Paul wrote much of the New Testament in prison. 
not the majority, but much. He wrote a lot from prison, from chains. If Paul can write letters, you can send a text and see how people are doing. If Paul was writing scripture because the Holy Spirit was moving him, the Holy Spirit can give you creative and inventive ways to minister to people in isolation, during social distancing. We have tools that they never had then. Are we using them? Write an email. Send a message. Start a blog. Do a live video. I mean, like, just take your devotional reading. Church, this shouldn't just be happening from pastors. Take a devotional reading that God ministered to you through in a week, like, like you're reading, you know, throughout the week and just once a week. It's like, wow, that is so powerful. That's so encouraging. And do a live feed, put it on YouTube. It's simple. I'll help you do it. We need to be doing this as a church. This just doesn't fall to, to pastors. Share with people, encourage people, send them encouraging messages, ask them if they need help. Let's get outside of our bubbles. Let's get outside of our, our own self-loathing and let's start helping people. This is an opportunity. It's not a curse. Quarantine is not a curse. It's an opportunity to be the church because the church is not building. Church is a people. They can take every building away from us right now, every single structure that we have, and we would still be the church. We would still be God's children. We would still be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and well inside of us. And I hope you're amening and high-fiving each other in the room right now, because that's absolute truth. I aim to fire you up and to encourage you not to waste your time binge-watching YouTube and Netflix. Cast that stuff aside. It's okay to relax. But if that's what you're doing with your time and you can't find things to do, please call me. I will give you things to do. It's like your parents, you know, when they would look at you just kind of walking around the house, like, do you need something to do? There's nothing to do. I'll give you something to do. I, I mean, I, I'm not wanting to parent you. I want to challenge you. God wants to use you right now. He wants to encourage the church right now. He wants to use the gospel in our nation, in our world right now. These are opportunities. Let's do it together. That's what we're here for. May the Lord find within us obedient hearts and minds and bodies that are moving in the direction that he's calling us, no matter how difficult, no matter how much we don't like it. Because it doesn't matter if we see the point. It doesn't matter if we like the journey. It's God's calling. He put us here for such a season as this. When God made us church, he knew we would go through this. So it's okay. We're in his hands. Entrust yourself to him and continue entrusting yourself to him. For the one who's called us is faithful. God will be faithful. Now is not the time to sleep below deck. Now is the time to be on mission using whatever tools that are at our disposal to reach the lost. And if you know somebody, share this with them. You don't have to share the video. You can. I encourage you to share the video. But if you've heard this, take the word and encourage somebody with it this week. Take this message and call someone. You know what? We can't be like this. Let's go. Let's do this together. Not beating anyone down. Not pushing anyone to the ground. We're the church. We're Christians. We're saved by the Lord. There is no condemnation in Christ. There's tons of encouragement though. And that's what this is all about. And as we'll see next week, God's heart is not only to encourage and strengthen us. His heart is for the lost. 
Not just the lost in Nineveh either. Even through Jonah's disobedience, God is going to get some salvation for these sailors going. It's going to be awesome. He's going to save these sailors. We're going to see it happen next week. So God can even use us when we feel like, oh, I failed. It's over now. I'm, not, I'm never going to be able to recover. That's baloney. That's garbage. He can use you right now even if you fail. Turn to him. Get above deck. Don't go to sleep. Get above deck and start doing what you're called to do. That's the challenge for me, for you, for all of us. God's about to work powerfully, and I want to be a part of it. God's going to do something in this world. And until Jesus comes, I want to be a part of all of that. And when Jesus comes, I really want to be a part of that. But like, until then, I want to be a part of what he's doing right now, not walking around sulking and moping about how I don't have what I should have in my life. I'm sorry if your stimulus check hasn't come. God is greater. That's the truth. We need to remember that he is our sustaining strength. He is the one that provides for us. And you know what? A lot of times, church, he puts us in position to be the facilitators of that care. And so when people are struggling, if you're struggling, I'm not saying just pretend like it's not happening. I'm saying we are here to help you. And God is our source and our strength. Church, I hope you're encouraged by this. I hope as we go through this short series here in Jonah that we all walk away from it with just a ton of encouragement um, because we see God working in this time. I want us to worship now, and, and I think that this song that we're about to sing, um, both songs that we're going to sing to end our time together, really connect with what we see here in Jonah and what we've talked about in that passage from 1 Thessalonians 5. I think that all these things connect together. And so I hope that you're encouraged. Um, this song is called Still in Control. Um, we haven't done it on a Sunday, but we did it during our Friday night service. And it's a great song of encouragement. You'll be very familiar when we get to the bridge. It's from an old, um, I call it a hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Um, but I want to encourage you to uh, follow the lyrics. They should be on the comment section for you. And um, I hope that this connects with where we're at. And encourage us that, as the song's going to say, God is still in control. He's got all of this. None of it's beyond his power. It's just our job to stay above deck. And the reason I use that, that picture is because I, I know that we should be on the road to Nineveh. But maybe some of us have failed and we're on the boat. Get above deck. Let's wake up. This is our time. The church is not building church is us we're people Lord just work in us as we worship